Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. We are so glad that you were able to join us this week. You are listening to our Sunday morning sermon series, Developing Disciples. This week, we begin the final of a two-part message in this series as we begin to study John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we're seeing the conclusion to Jesus' final exhortation to his disciples. This conclusion happens through this departing prayer. In this departing prayer, we see how Jesus is ultimately praying for His and the Father's glory, how He's praying for His disciples, and ultimately how He is praying for the future church. This week, we consider in detail what it means for Jesus to pray for the Father's glory and what it means for Jesus to pray for His disciples. We certainly pray that you are encouraged and challenged as you listen. This morning we find ourselves in John chapter 17. If you want to go ahead and be finding your place, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19 this morning. and We're actually entering the final two weeks now of this series that we have been working through over the last uh, seven or so chapters of the Gospel of John. Of course, we have seen this recurring theme now of Jesus developing His disciples uh, through this, this particular portion of John's Gospel. And so now we come to uh, really the, the conclusion of this scene. We start to transition more to uh, really the focus of the cross, the scene of the crucifixion and resurrection uh, following uh, this, this chapter. And so uh, we'll spend two more weeks here looking at this, and then we're actually going to break, and we're going to look at a few of the Psalms as we prepare ourselves for the Easter season. And then we will return to our study through John's Gospel, which will lead us up and through uh, the Easter season. But let's let's set the stage here. Uh, it's for John chapter 17. Maybe, maybe you weren't, haven't been with us the last few weeks, or you're new with us this morning. What we're what this scene is happening at the conclusion of Jesus' sort of final exhortation, his final teaching to his disciples. That's why we've been talking about him developing his disciples. It's precisely what he's been doing through primarily exhortation, right? Through teaching. Now, there's been some discourse. But it's interesting, we've spent about seven chapters uh, here in John's Gospel, which has only really covered a few hours of actual time for Jesus and His disciples. If you remember, this began in the upper room where they were having their last supper with Jesus. That's where His final discourse really begins. And then we've spent uh, several chapters looking at the time period between when they leave the upper room as they travel towards uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus offers His departing prayer. And so that's really where we find ourselves this morning. He is, Jesus has been teaching His disciples. He's been exhorting His disciples. And now He turns His attention from His disciples to the Father in prayer. Now you're going to notice uh, through chapter 17 that there's really three primary concerns of Jesus in this prayer. Number one is His and the Father's glory. We're going to see that this morning. Number two is His disciples, their mission and their protection, their joy, all of these sorts of things. We'll see that this morning as well. But then finally what we'll see next week 
is actually Jesus' concern for the church. Now, that Greek word, ekklesia, it's not mentioned in this passage. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Gospel of John. But we'll see next week how Jesus actually has the church, the body of Christ, in view at the end of John chapter 17. But I invite you to join with me as we read the first part of this chapter this morning. John chapter 17, again, beginning in verse 1. We're going to work down through verse 19 this morning. John writes, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also might glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, and with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. They have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Excuse me, those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified. Through the truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that this is your inerrant, infallible, and fully inspired word. And so, Lord, as we take this word, as we consider it, Lord, may it be the bread that we need. Lord, may it be the water that sustains our lives, Lord, that, that helps us to grow and mature spiritually. Lord, we simply ask as we consider this word that. What we know not, you would please teach us. What we have not, you would please give us. And certainly, Lord, what we are not, that you would please make us. Because we know that your word is the primary force of shaping our lives into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, before we really get into the contents of this prayer this morning, I I want you to notice, once again, this recurring theme in John's Gospel. This is something that I have alluded to throughout our study to John's Gospel because it is an important theme, and we see the importance of this theme 
beginning to to hit its climax in verse 1. I want you to notice how Jesus begins His prayer. He says what? The hour has come. Now you remember, we've seen plenty of references that Jesus has made to the hour, right? That the hour is coming, the hour is not yet come. Uh, he, he said this over and over to His disciples and to His listeners. But now as He turns His attention to the Father, it's no longer the hour is coming, or the hour is about to come, or the hour is near. It is the hour has come. Now... I want to be very clear here. I want you to see why this is important. It's not simply the hour that Jesus has been preparing for. Yes, of course, He's been preparing for this hour. But this is actually now, Jesus is introducing the hour that the entire world for all of human history since the fall of man has been anticipating. This is the hour that the world has been longing for for thousands and thousands of years when there would be an opportunity for a lost, for a sinful, for a rebellious mankind to be reconciled to God through the suffering Messiah. You see, this hour is the fulfillment of the promise made in the Garden of Eden, right? Made in the Garden that, that God would one day send a rescuer to rescue humanity from our sin. This is the moment when everything will change, right? The history of the world will shift over the course of these few days, right? When sinful creatures will once again be able to enjoy fellowship with their Creator, right? It'll be the time when, when spiritual life triumphs over spiritual death. This is indeed the beginning of the climax of the story. We're almost there. The cross is, is less than maybe 12 or 13 hours away now. But I want you to see what Jesus does. Right? We've talked about how important it is that He stops and He teaches His disciples. He develops His disciples. Not just so that they'll know intellectually who He is, but He wants them to be ready for these three days. Right? They're going to be incredibly difficult. But we've seen Jesus' picture is even bigger than just these three days. He doesn't just want them to be able to, to, to persevere through these three difficult days. He's really developing them to fulfill the mission that He's giving them. Right? And so it's, 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 much, it's much bigger than, than just a few days. It's, it's, about, it's about a mission. It's about a life on mission. We're going to see all of that. But... That doesn't lead us directly to the cross. Look what Jesus does. He teaches, but then He stops and He prays. Here He is at the doorway to the cross. And Jesus stops and He takes a moment to cry out for the Father's help. So I want us to look at the three parts of this prayer that I've already mentioned. The first two this week and then the final one next week. And in verses 1 through 5, this first part really comes into view. We see where Jesus begins this prayer. And ultimately, Jesus is beginning this prayer by praying for the Father's glory. Praying, pray, but, but, he, but he, doesn't, he doesn't do it what we perceive as directly, right? He actually says, Lord, glorify me, right? And so, so it, it, on the surface, it almost seems like He's just praying for His glory. But what we'll see, what I want you to understand, is that Jesus knows the only way for the Father to truly be glorified before man is for the Father to glorify Jesus before man. Because Jesus is the one that is giving us the image of the Father, right? He is the, he is the physical display of the Father. And so that's what's happening here. Jesus is praying that the Father would glorify Him. But the reason Jesus is praying that the Father would glorify Him 
isn't to demonstrate some sort of selfishness. It's to demonstrate that the Father would ultimately be glorified as the Son is glorified. And we have some textual evidence to back this up as we have considered John's Gospel. John has made it very clear, even from chapter 1, verse 1, that the Father and the Son are one. They're united, right? Eternally, holy, united, right? They, they are one. And so if the Son is glorified, then the Father is glorified. And so this glorification of the Son that Jesus prays for is actually to the end of the glorification of the Father. Now, I want us to understand something very important about the word glory. Because this is obviously a word that's used very frequently in Scripture. Uh, We often think about and talk about the glory of God. But there's something very unique about this word glory, about our understanding of the word glory, the nature of the word glory in Scripture. Right? We talk about the glory of God, but at the same time we talk about glorifying God. And so we need to remember that we're referring to both a noun and a verb. So when we think about the glory of God, we really think about this in terms of it being a noun and in terms of it being a verb. And so the glory of God, right, used as a noun, the glory of God is His goodness displayed. So when we think about glory as a noun, and I know you may not be an English teacher or even really enjoy the English language, but when we talk about glory as a noun, we are talking about the goodness of God on display. But then when we think about glorifying God, When we think about glory as a verb, we're talking about His goodness being celebrated. So you see that. It's this twofold, not just understanding, but it's really this twofold application of a very important word in Scripture. That God's glory, that His goodness would be on display, but also that that goodness would be responded to, that it would be celebrated. Now here's here's, here's what we need to understand. God's glory as a noun is not affected by God's glory as a verb. Here's what I mean by that. God is good whether we celebrate it or not. Right? My willingness or your willingness or my obedience or your obedience to celebrate God's goodness does not affect how good God is. Right? God is good regardless of if anyone knows it, if anyone responds to it. God is glorious. Right? His, his glory is a fact that has been firmly established, established not just throughout all history, but throughout all eternity. Right, Before the earth was created, God was glorious. As the earth was, was being created, God is glorious. As, as human history has unfolded, God is glorious. When this whole thing wraps up, God will still be glorious. And it is not, His glory is not affected by my glorifying and your glorifying. And so the verb doesn't change the truth of the noun, but the verb does place a heavy responsibility on you and I. Because God is glorious and God has revealed His glory, yes, through His creation, but He has revealed His glory primarily through His Son and through His Word. And therefore, you and I have had an opportunity to see His goodness. And once we have the opportunity to see His goodness, we have the responsibility to celebrate His goodness. So here when Jesus prays to be glorified, it means His goodness must be seen and celebrated. Now think about this for just a second. For God to answer this request of Jesus, for God to answer this prayer, it means that the greatness of Jesus will will need to be understood and acknowledged. 
But here's the difficulty in that. Jesus is about to be cursed. The cross is not an object of goodness. The cross is an object of torture. The cross is an object of God's displeasure. And so somehow, God is going to have to take the object of His displeasure. He's going to have to take this moment where His displeasure, which is a really weak word for it, where His wrath will be poured out on His Son on a cursed cross. He's going to have to take that and turn it into an object of goodness. Now, how He's going to do this, how He did this, is actually found in verse 5. We see that the Father will glorify the Son by restoring Him to the position that He had before the foundation of the world. You see, here's what is about to happen. Here's, what, here's the promise that verse 5 gives the disciples. Here's the promise that we know has been and is being fulfilled from verse 5. You see, Jesus' divine goodness is going to eventually be vindicated through the resurrection. Three days from now, three days from this time that Jesus is praying this prayer, His divine goodness will be vindicated through the resurrection. But it doesn't stop there. His divine goodness is also going to be displayed through His exaltation. And then one day we are looking forward to when His goodness will be celebrated at the consummation of His kingdom. And so He's vindicated through the resurrection. He is, he, it's, his goodness is displayed through His exaltation. And one day it will be celebrated through His consummation. You see, in the scenes of heaven that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation, we see a day when heaven will cry out with one voice. One voice. As a matter of fact, Revelation 5.12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered or slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. This is the eternal picture of the celebration of God's goodness. And it's all occurring through His Son Jesus being glorified. You see, Revelation 5.12 is proof that God is answering Jesus' prayer in the garden. You see, in this prayer, Jesus displays God's goodness. He does it in a number of ways, but maybe, maybe primarily or one of the things that stands out to us the most is by securing eternal life for those who belong to Him. You see, His willingness to go to the cross, conquering death, uh, to gain eternal life for His people that really reveals to us the character of God, right? And as, we, as the character of God is revealed to us, it should ignite in us praise to God for His goodness. But I want us to make sure we have this really robust understanding of eternal life. I want you to understand this morning, eternal life is not just everlasting life. It is everlasting life, but it's much more than just living forever. I want you to understand this morning, eternal life is a relationship with the everlasting God. It's far more than just living forever. It's a living relationship with an everlasting God. Eternal life is, is, this, is this opportunity to forever delight in the manifold glories of God. Eternal life is, is seeing God and rejoicing forever in His presence. Eternal life is, is living how you and I were actually created to live in fellowship with our Creator. A fellowship that was broken the moment Adam disobeyed the simple command not to eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. 
And so the moment, the moment that Jesus most reveals the goodness of God is on the cross. Hanging there, suspended between heaven and earth, between, between the ground and the sky, Jesus glorifies God in a way the world has absolutely never seen. Never has there been a time in history where the holy justice of God and the holy love of God had been displayed so powerfully together. And at the cross, that's exactly what we have. The holy justice of God and the holy love of God. Now here's the fact of the matter. You and I or anyone else cannot begin to understand, to adequately understand how glorious God is without the cross. There's no way to understand, for you and I to understand even close to a satisfactory level, the glory of God without the cross. That's true for everyone. And so if you wonder how some people can't recognize the glory of God, then it's probably a pretty good indicator they don't understand the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ is the proper understanding of the glory of God. It's there that we, see, that we see His holiness, right? We see His wrath and His love. We see His justice and His mercy and all are perfectly displayed through the death of His Son, Jesus. And in that hour, in that moment, the request of Jesus is answered. In the cross, the glorious wrath and love of God are revealed. The Father glorifies the Son, and the Son reveals the unparalleled goodness of the Father to us. You see, it is Jesus' number one priority to bring glory to the Father. That's it. That's His number one mission, is to bring glory to God. When he talks about fulfilling the work that he had to do on this earth, he's talking about making the glory of God known every possible way that he possibly could have during his earthly ministry. And so now is this final act, right? This final portrayal that will put all of the pieces together, that will make sense for all of the disciples and all of those who would follow after. But here's the thing. We can acknowledge that it's Jesus' number one priority to bring glory to the Father, but we must ask the question, if you and I are following Christ, what does that mean for you and me? If it was Jesus' number one priority, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for the disciples who Jesus has been speaking to directly? What does it mean? Well, quite simply, it can mean nothing less than this. The glory of God must be the top priority in our lives. If I stopped right there this morning and that's all you got, that would probably be enough to chew on for a while. The glory of God must be the number one priority in my life and your life. Now, if you're like me, you woke up this morning with a number of things that you think you need to do today and this week, right? Priorities, if you will. Let me ask you, where did God's glory fall on that list of priorities this morning? becomes a incredibly... Difficult question, not because we don't know the answer, it's difficult because we likely know the answer to that question. And this has huge implications. Of course it has huge implications for how you and I live very practically today and tomorrow and the rest of this week, but this has huge implications for what the church does, 
for our understanding of why the church exists. So let's just follow the logical conclusion. If my job and your job as individual followers of Christ is primarily the glory of God, then what is the primary responsibility of the church? The glory of God. To express the glory of God. Everything you do should have as its purpose. Remember how we define the word glory. It's this verb now, glorifying God. So everything we do should have as its purpose the worship of God. This this has to penetrate every single detail of our lives. My life and your life is intended to reveal and celebrate the goodness of God. Every aspect of it. And listen, I promise you this morning, you're not alone in missing the mark on this. There's at least two of us, me and you. Right? But the reality is probably all of us can easily identify areas where we have sort of set to the side where we're not so concerned with God's glory in this area of our life. It's not that we may be totally disobedient. We've just not totally surrendered it to God. We've not totally viewed this, this portion or this section of our life, this portion or this section of our schedule in light of our responsibility to worship and to lead others to worship God through it. And so here's the thing, when we, when we think about this in terms of evangelism, when we t- think about this in terms of sharing the gospel, obviously it naturally leads to that responsibility. But I want us to understand, our goal in sharing the gospel, please hear this, is not to enlist converts. It's not our number one priority. We think of it that way sometimes. right? We want to create a really long list of converts. But I don't think that's what Jesus is intending in His development of His disciples. I don't think that's what the Great Commission entails. The Great Commission isn't concerned with a long list of converts. The Great Commission is concerned with us leading people to be worshipers. And converts and worshipers can be two totally different things. People are all the time converted to religions that don't necessarily lead them to Jesus. In some cases, lead them away from Jesus. And so we're not trying to convert someone to a religion. We're not trying to convert someone to church membership, although church membership is incredibly important. Biblical, regenerative church membership. We'll look at that next week. What we're trying to do is lead people to see the glory of God through the cross of Christ that there may be worshipers. Let me put it to you this way. Do you realize that evangelism will not exist in heaven? There'll be no need for evangelism. You won't have to worry about counting gospel conversations and Christian acts of kindness. You won't have to worry about different ways that you can engage in gospel conversations. It won't be necessary. God's mercy is, is displayed in the death of Jesus Christ and that mercy, that display of God's goodness should fuel our evangelistic fervor while we're on this earth. You see, we rejoice in the goodness of God. And it should be my heart's desire and it should be your heart's desire to see every person, see everyone that we come in contact with, to see all the nations see Him and rejoice in His goodness as well. Listen, our mission is quite simply to help people find joy in Jesus. And the clearer they see His goodness and the more His goodness is celebrated in their lives, the more they'll find joy. We talked about joy as an abiding disciple last week. And we could simplify all that to say the more 
you see God's goodness and the more you celebrate God's goodness, the more joy you will experience in a world and in a life that is really, really hard. And so here's what happens. And we're just focusing on the goodness of God. We're finding joy in the goodness of God. We're celebrating the goodness of God with every aspect of our lives. And then very naturally, we'll be proclaiming to our neighbors and to the nations exactly what the psalmist proclaimed. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That is our message. You see, the recognition of His divine goodness and the call for others to see it and celebrate it is quite simply our mission. And all of that is wrapped up in those five verses where Jesus is praying for His glory and for the Father's glory. But then we come to verses 6 through 19. And Jesus transitions now from praying just for His glory and the Father's glory to now He starts praying really pretty directly for His disciples. Now, the disciples were called by the power of God. Right? We, we see this several different times, several different ways in this passage. And now Jesus asked God to keep them from straying, right, from, from wandering away. And so here's what we must understand. We're, we're, we're sort of diving into the theological depths just a little bit here. Only, only the power of God at work in these men, in the disciples, makes it possible for them to follow Jesus, for them to obey His commands, and for them to fulfill His mission. It's only the power of God at work in them that makes it possible. We've talked about this before. The same is true for you and I. It is only when the power of God is at work in me and the power of God is at work in you where we can do exactly this, where we can, uh, where we can, where we can follow Jesus, where we can obey His commands, and where we can fulfill His mission. Now, four times in this chapter and three times in the verses that we are considering this morning, the, the disciples are described as those who have been given to Jesus by the Father. Now just translating this as literally as I possibly can into modern English, the end of verse 2, what does He say? Everyone you have given Me, right? Jesus is saying this to the Father. Everyone you have given Me. Then twice in verse 6, the people that you gave Me from the world, and then again in verse 6, you gave them to Me. Then in the middle of verse 9, He references again, those you have given Me. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this sort of language. Jesus is very clear. He's not praying for the whole world. He's praying for those that have been given to Him by the Father. But again, this isn't unique language. In the, even, Of course not in Scripture, but even in the Gospel of John. Twice in chapter 6, in verses 37 through 39, this same type of language is used. Once in chapter 10, over in verse 29, this same type of language is used. And so we've talked about it in both of those cases as we journeyed through this Gospel. But here's the reality. Here's, the, here's, here's as simple as we can put this theological truth. Prior to salvation, we were cold. You and I were cold, dead sinners. And we were cold, dead sinners because of two things. By our nature and by our choice, we were rebels against God. It was our choice because it was our nature to rebel against God. And so the only way that you and I could ever come to Him is if He did a work in our hearts, right? Drawing us to Himself. And here's the thing, when God does the work, we respond. Notice here in chapter 17, it's not just that God does the work of drawing, but it's also that the disciples respond to the work of God. 
Now we get really caught up, uh, some Christians get really caught up in this debate over God's sovereignty and man's free will. And really what it boils down to is just an unwillingness to acknowledge uh, that finite minds cannot fully understand an infinite God. But I actually think those two doctrines are very reconcilable. I don't think they're at odds against one another in Scripture. And I think this very chapter is proof that they are not. So so God is doing the work of drawing, right? It's by His power. It's by His initiation. And then the disciples respond to the work of God. Look at verse 6. They had to respond. They had to keep the Father's Word. Right? They they had to receive in verse 8 the Word through the teaching of Jesus. But also in verse 8, they came to understand and believe what God had said. So you see the responsibility of the disciples. Keep the Father's Word. Receive the Word through Jesus' teaching and believe that it is true, right? Believe and understand based on what God has said. And so here we have this intersection of God's sovereignty and foreknowledge with man's responsibility. The disciples were responsible to believe, but even their belief was a result of what God had said and done. God said it, God did it, there was a responsibility to respond to it. I could illustrate it this way. Most of you uh, can probably remember or maybe are currently experiencing what it's like to have small children. So take, take Hayden, for example, this morning, right? If you've seen him, he's clothed, he's fed, mostly clean, probably, and he's here. And he didn't do any of those things himself. He can't do any of those things himself. Someone had to clothe him. Someone had to feed him. Someone had to bathe him. He simply had to respond, right? He had to eat the food. He had to wear the clothes. He had to get the bath, right? And so someone else was was doing it for him, and he just had this responsibility to respond. He didn't do it himself. He couldn't do it himself, right? If, if, If... we were waiting on Hayden to get himself ready for church this morning, we would still be over there at the house waiting for Hayden to get himself ready for church this morning. All he did was simply respond. So that's really a picture of what's happening here. God does the work of calling sinners to salvation. He does the work of saving sinners, and our responsibility is simply to respond to what God does and has done. And so let's summarize these two principles that really come to the surface here in verses 6 through 11. First is that God did the work, right? We want to be very clear on this. Everything the disciples did was in response to what God had already done. The disciples kept the Word, but who gave the Word? God gave the Word. The disciples believed on Jesus, but who sent Jesus? God sent Jesus. But not only did God do the work, we also see that God used His Word. You see, the way that God brought them to faith was through His words. He didn't use some sort of crazy visions or aberrations. He didn't open up the heavens and rain down some sort of fire and brimstone. He created new life in His disciples simply through His words. And so if you wonder, when we talk about the five things that should be most important to any church, but that should be most important to our church, making much of Jesus and being about the business of God's Word, this is why. Because this is the only place that salvation can be found. People, listen, ultimately you're not going to be saved because you see some sort of crazy vision. You won't be saved until you 
hear God's Word and respond to God's Word in faithfulness. And this is where salvation is found. And the reason salvation is found here is not because this book in your lap is capable of saving you, but it's because this book in your lap points you and tells you everything you possibly need to know about the one who does save you. This is where we have the full revelation of Jesus. In order to learn more about Jesus, you don't have to pray for some sort of vision. You don't have to rely on God sending some sort of miraculous dream. Man, just open up this Word and read what it says. Receive it in faith. Believe it to be true. And we have the perfect picture, the perfect image of God's goodness through His Son, Jesus. And so, as this plays out here, what God has done for the disciples really leads us to what God will do. Right? So we've been talking in the past tense, but there's also some future tense here. Right? We've, we see, we believe, we understand the disciples that you and I also are saved by the power of God. We believe that, they are, that we are kept by the power of God. Right? We're seeing this verses 11 through 19. But then Jesus asked, his, asked the Father to keep the disciples faithful to His Word and His mission. You see that in verse 11. And so what Jesus is really focused on here is His disciples' spiritual security. Yes, their spiritual maturity, but maybe most of all in this instance, their spiritual security. You see, as the disciples embrace the truth, they're, they're brought into this new community of faith called the church. So we're already getting some introduction into where Jesus is going at the end of this prayer. But entry into this community only comes through believing the Word of God. That's why, as being distinctly Baptist, we believe in regenerative church membership. We believe that the church is a people, right? A people that's been set apart by the work of God through the salvation of God in His Son Jesus to, to covenant together to do the work of God in this world. And so we want to be incredibly careful Right? We, we want to be incredibly careful about who we admit to church membership because it's not membership into a country club. We're talking about a living, breathing organism that does the work of God, that does the mission of God. We believe that in Scripture it, is, it, it teaches that it is reserved only for believers. And so our process is simply you hear the gospel, you respond to the gospel, right? repent of your sins, believe that Jesus, in fact, is the crucified and resurrected Messiah that is the only one capable of saving you from your sins. You are baptized, and as we are being baptized, it is this public display of a spiritual reality where we are making a public commitment to Christ, but also to His people. And I believe that this picture is in view here as Jesus is, is, is praying and talking about the spiritual maturity, the spiritual security, but also we'll see the spiritual unity of His people. A church cannot be unified if a church has people who are in Christ and people who are not in Christ. Unity, spiritual unity, the kind of unity the church requires is not possible if one person is saved and one person is not. Right? And so we'll, we'll talk about that more next week for sure, but, but we have to see that this is where Jesus is going. He mentions that, that, that the church is intended to share this, this amazing level of unity. Right, A unity, what does He say? It's a unity that will mirror the unity between the Father and Son. He says, Lord, give them the same kind of unity that you and I have. Man, 
That's an incredible prayer. I am so happy that Jesus is praying that for His church. But I also feel an incredible weight of responsibility because I wonder how often in our churches we are as unified as the Father and the Son are. Probably not nearly as often as we should be. Maybe not very often at all. But what is it that gets in the way? Again, things that we'll see as we continue this passage even into next week. Here's what I want to say this morning though. Genuine unity never comes where truth is discarded. Because what we're seeing in Jesus' prayer is that unity is the byproduct of each disciple clinging to the truth of God. This is why I said all of that about regenerative church membership. Ultimately, the type of unity that is required in the church can only be found when the entire church clings. There's a thousand ways I could describe this, but clings to the truth of God. And so here's where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Unity will not come when we cling to our preferences. Unity will not come when we cling to our traditions. Unity only comes when we cling to the truth of God's Word. Now, I talked about how we're distinctly Baptist, but I do unfortunately believe that sometimes us very distinct Baptists, especially in the Bible Belt, act distinctly Catholic. You see, there's two forms of authority in the Catholic Church. There's the Word of God, but there's also the tradition of the church. Those two forms of authority are held in equal regard in the church. And so when you see in the news that the Pope is is making some sort of statement or that the Catholic Church has made some sort of statement, they in part base that on what God's Word says, but they give equal authority to the tradition of the church. If you look at the Catholic Church, I don't mean to berate the Catholic Church, but the facts are the facts. It's in complete theological disarray because the tradition of men have been held in equal authority to God's Word. Now as Baptists, we claim that that we, we have one authority, God's Word. But how many times in practice are our influences about what our church will do based on the traditions of men? When it comes to needing to do something, when it comes to fulfilling the mission of God, how many times do we simply filter it through God's Word or how many times do we filter it through what those before us have done? It doesn't mean that what those have done before us is wrong. It could be very much right. The Catholic Church was not always in severe theological error. But when we start basing our unity on something other than God's Word, eventually disunity will arise. Because unity can only be found in the truth of God's Word. And so your your preferences may not be wrong. I've said before, traditions are not always a bad thing. They're just not the main thing. Your preferences may be good preferences. My preferences may be good preferences, but they're not the main thing. The Word of God is the main thing. And if the glory of God is not being revealed by the people of God to the community that they're in, to the place that God has placed them, then there's an issue. There's an issue of unity. There's an issue of theological unity, but there's also the issue of practice. I think a good illustration of this is actually the sport of rowing. Now, if you've ever watched rowing, probably in the Olympics would be your best chance to watch it. And we're a competitive family, so... 
Um, if there's a sport on, I'm going to watch it and I'm going to find somebody to pull for. But if you've ever watched the sport of rowing, maybe, maybe the, uh, the most prominent image uh, is, is some of the, the, longer, the longer vessels in rowing, right, that may have six, seven, or eight uh, rowers on them. And they row for uh, pretty long distances, right? But if you watch, all of the rowers are actually facing backwards, right? Uh, their back is facing to the direction that they're going. And each and every rower, it's absolutely essential that their oars hit the water and leave the water at the exact same time. It's got to be perfectly in sync. If it's not, one of two things are going to happen. They're going to veer off course or they're going to lose their speed. So it's got to be perfect. And there's a really important position on the rowing team called the coxswain. And he is the only one that is sitting facing the direction that the boat is going. All the other rowers have their back to the direction. They can't see where they're going. All they can see is the coxswain giving the orders, right? He's, he's giving them the cadence. He's keeping the rhythm to make sure that the oars are hitting the water at the same time each and every time. And so the success of the team is not based on how hard each one tries, right? It's not, it's not just, all right, boys, hop in there and just, just row as hard as you can. We'll hope for the best. No, the success of the team is based on the rower's willingness and ability to submit to the instruction of the one that can see where they're going. And the exact same thing is true of the church. I mean, we don't just show up and we just all try as hard as we can. We do try hard. We try hard to do one thing. Submit to the instruction and the direction of King Jesus. Every rower may have different height, different weight, different strengths, different weaknesses. Every church member may have different gifts, different preferences, enjoy different traditions, but ultimately all of that is secondary to our response to King Jesus giving us the commands and the cadence so that we row in rhythm together to fulfill the mission of God here at Locust Grove, here in this community, and all across the world. And it's to this end that Jesus is praying for His disciples. And by the way, this whole prayer, yes, Jesus is praying. Uh, he certainly has in view these 11 men that remain. Of course, Judas Iscariot was mentioned here. He's already betrayed Jesus. He's already left them. But this is the prayer that Jesus is praying for all believers. Right? All those the Father has given Him. So as the disciples submit to the voice of God, they grow more and more of the same mind. And it's interesting. As churches, as Christians, covenant together. And this becomes our guide. This becomes our primary source of unity. You know what's going to happen? My preferences are going to shift a little bit. My preferences, I'm talking about me, may not be as pronounced as they once were. My my leaning towards certain traditions may not be as strong as they once were. As a matter of fact, I'll have a better perspective on those traditions. I'll understand the value of those traditions. I'll understand how those traditions ought to be used and how they ought not to be used. Because all of a sudden, those aren't the things that unify us. Right? The things we've always done, the things we've always liked, those aren't the things that unify us as the body of Christ. This is the thing that unifies us as the body of Christ. And so this changes the things that need to be changed. And we do so willingly and graciously because those things aren't the most important things in our lives anymore. 
So as we submit to the voice of God, to the, to the voice of Christ directing us, right? Directing us as we paddle together, if you will, then we grow more and more of the same mind. Our thoughts, our desires, our intentions begin to mirror God's intentions. And we begin to experience a unity that is completely unfamiliar to the world. And dare I say, will actually be appealing to the world. Because unity is really hard to find in this world. In fact, it can only be found, I believe, in physical representation in a healthy church. And that's what's appealing, is when a church is unified around the only thing that can unify us. But not only does God do the work in in drawing them closer to one another, but also allows them to experience the joy of Jesus. Notice verse 13. We have this incredible picture of God's grace, right? He, He sends Jesus to reveal the truth about Himself. He does a work in the disciples' hearts so that they embrace the truth. But by embracing the truth, they're brought into the joy of Jesus. And now God keeps them from abandoning the truth, right? And He guarantees them this eternally satisfying joy in Jesus. God's doing the work from start to finish, yet the disciples are the one receiving the joy. Listen, we, we know from reading the continuation of this story, the disciples are going to face very real danger. They're the targets of a world that hates them and a devil who wants to see them turn away from following Jesus. Jesus is praying about this in verses 14 and 15. And so the path of least resistance for the disciples would seem to be just turning away. Because holding on to the truth here, it sounds good to talk about the unity that comes into the truth, but I've got to warn you. Because Jesus is praying for this, so we know that it must be true. When we hold on to the truth, it will bring attacks of every kind. And sometimes turning from the truth would seem to bring relief. It's quite a big temptation. But how helpful it is to know that God is keeping His disciples who keep His Word. He's protecting them. Just as He rescued them from the domain of darkness, He will will preserve them from every attack. God will keep them faithful to His Word and to His mission. This is a promise to the 11 disciples He's praying for in this very moment. It's a disciple. It's a promise to us who are now disciples who Jesus is praying for in this moment. These first disciples were the foundation of the church. God has a special role for them to play. And their stage is the world scene. They fulfill their roles as His set-apart witnesses while, notice what Jesus says, remaining in the world. Here's what I want to get to before we close. There's a lot of ways Christians respond to Jesus. And this is very important talking about remaining in the world because there's really only three ways that Christians try to respond in faithfulness to salvation. The first one is isolation. Christians believe that the gospel needs to be protected instead of shared, right? They, they hear the call to remain faithful to God's Word and they disengage from all non-Christians. They think, man, what better way to keep from falling away than to keep yourself as far as possible uh, from, from any sort of temptation. Now listen, their legitimate res- desire is to remain faithful to God's truth. But it's caused them to miss the mission of God. So we can think about it this way. They're very concerned with holiness, right? I want to I isolate from any unholiness. So very concerned with holiness, but so concerned with holiness, they have sacrificed the mission of God. And so that's what some Christians do. This happens primarily to two groups of people. People who are in vocational ministry. Hold on now. 
and senior adults who are retired. We isolate ourselves. One of the number one reasons that pastors and seniors say they don't have weekly gospel conversations is because they're not around anyone to share the gospel with. Consume themselves primarily with believers, right? Their friends are pretty well established. And so that happens primarily for those two groups of people. But there's not just the, pro- the practice of isolation, there's also the practice of inoculation. That's believing the gospel has made them immune to temptation and worldliness. This has happened predominantly in, amongst the millennials, and even to some extent is happening in Generation Z. They hear the call to remain faithful to God's mission and to immerse themselves fully in the world. And so they ask what better way to reach the world than to blur any possible distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian. And so these Christians minimize the biblical teachings on sin and repentance, choosing to live exactly as their non-Christian neighbors. And their desire is legitimate. They want to remain faithful to God's mission, but it's caused them to disregard His truth. And so they're sacrificing holiness for the obedience to mission. And so you see this. Isolation sacrifice sacrifices mission in pursuit of holiness. Inoculation sacrifices holiness in pursuit of mission. Neither one of these seem like very satisfying options, do they? And so there is this third way, the way I believe Scripture teaches how Christians ought to respond to the gospel. And that is not through isolation or inoculation, but through something we call insulation. Believing that a daily focus on the gospel will protect us from temptation as we seek to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. You see, insulation means we are working diligently to balance faithfulness to the truth and faithfulness to the mission of God. We recognize that Christians should live differently from non-Christians but not removing ourselves from a world of non-Christians. We live differently in the midst of an unbelieving world and the difference is seen in our unmistakable fruit that Jesus is producing in our lives. Christian, let me simply say this. You and I need to engage the world. We may wish all ungodly corrupting influences were removed from our lives and that we could just forsake the world leaving it to its own devices. But you and I have been given a mission to live out and share the gospel in the world. I'll close with this story. In the mid-1800s, John Patton left England on a boat as a missionary to cannibals in the New Herbides Islands. God ultimately used His Word to keep John Patton faithful to his mission. On one occasion, measles had broken out and swept through the islands, killing thousands of people. And so Patton and some of the other missionaries that were there were blamed for this outbreak and their lives were once again being threatened. And listen to what Patton wrote in his diary about this time. He said, Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. His words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold Him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt His supporting power. It is a sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after twenty years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpse of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dreaded moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. See, Jesus asked in this prayer 
that the Father would keep His disciples faithful to His words and that they would be faithful to His mission. And His prayer, this prayer, we have seen it answered repeatedly throughout history. We've seen it answered in each and every one of the disciples as they became apostles in some form or fashion. We've seen it answered throughout history in, in missionary work. But this prayer isn't just for those disciples or for those who are missionaries in hard-to-reach places. This prayer is for each and every believer. And so here's what I want you to know this morning. As a follower of Christ, you can have confidence that the prayer Jesus prays for His disciples in John chapter 17 will be answered in your life. God will keep us faithful to His Word. His Word will strengthen us on our mission to spread the glory of Jesus to the nations. And so this is why even though it may seem overwhelming as we're learning about discipleship and evangelism and living on mission, even though it may seem overwhelming, even though we may feel burdened by it, man, here's what we have to know. Jesus has already, is currently petitioning on our behalf that the Father would protect us and keep us faithful to both His Word and His mission so that we may live holy lives but also missional lives. As Rebecca comes, I ask you to stand with me as we pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word this morning. We're thankful for this prayer of Jesus. And so Lord, right now as we, as we pray together, Lord, would You just work in our hearts? If there's one here this morning, Lord, who has never responded to the work that You've already done in Your Son, Jesus. Never responded in faith that would lead to salvation. Lord, as we so often pray, may today be the day of salvation because there is no hope found in anyone else besides Jesus. There's no peace, there's no satisfaction, there's no joy in anyone besides Jesus. And so if someone is here this morning longing to find that joy, Lord, we pray that they would grab someone by the hand, Lord, that they would talk with someone that would fall down in this altar before You and say, Lord, oh, how I need You. How I desperately need to respond to what You have already done and what You have taught through Your Word. But Lord, for those who have responded in faith, Lord, would You challenge us in this very moment to consider each and every aspect of our lives? And would we weigh the importance that celebrating Your glory has in each aspect of our lives? And Lord, as You search us, as we open our hearts and our minds to You, Lord, would You, would you lead us to repentance? to fall down and confess the things that we have allowed to get in the way of our celebration of Your goodness. So that we may live faithful lives of insulation where we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, trusting that it will protect us from theological error, that it will protect us from disobedience, but that it will fuel us and compel us, empower us to live on mission. Lord, we could do nothing that's been asked of us if it were not for Your power in us. And Lord, we take rest, we take confidence in the fact 
knowing that You not only sent Jesus to save us, but even now, Jesus prays for us that we would be protected as we live out the gospel in this world. And we ask all of this in His precious and holy name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We want to encourage you to be able to engage with Locust Grove on a new level. We are now receiving questions. These questions can be theological questions, questions about the Bible, about biblical history, Christian history, church history, or even questions concerning contemporary moral and ethical issues. You can submit these questions in person when you enter our sanctuary in the vestibule. There's a box there for you to be able to write your questions and submit them. Or you can submit them online. You can reach out to us through our church email, locustgrovebaptistchurch at gmail.com, through our Facebook page, through our church website, or even through our podcasting platform. You can submit your questions directly to us at anchor.fm forward slash podcast. We can't wait to hear some of the great questions that you'll have. We can't wait to be able to answer those questions and make sure that the church, that the body of Christ, that disciples are well informed and well equipped to be able to go into this world and make much of Jesus.